You'll be helped if you have your Bibles open. We'll read this passage in just a minute, but we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, that's on page 1014. So it's almost at the back of the Bible. Uh, 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll, I'll read the passage in just a moment. Well, it's not an understatement to say that today our culture uh, doesn't understand the concept of love very well. Of course, we know the word love, and I think we overuse the word love. You know, we say we love pizza and things along those lines. We love games and stuff like that. But we don't, we have a hard time understanding, I think, what love is. At least we don't seem to know it very well. We certainly know what a contract is, we know what it means to barter or negotiate, but we have a hard time understanding the nature and, I would argue, the rationale for true love, and there is a kind of pervasive lack of what we might call genuine love uh, today. People certainly throw around phrases like, I love you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the person means it. It doesn't mean that that person will always be faithful to you. Because people are deceptive, they can trick you, they can beguile you, they can lie, they can be disingenuous. Not just the politicians, but people in general can be disingenuous. I I don't think it's under understatement then to say that our culture has kind of a hard time grasping what it means to genuinely love one another. And that gets us to uh, today's text, which is going to be from verses 22 to 25, However, I would like to start reading all the way back up in verse 13. So, again, if you have your Bibles, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 is where we'll start. And I'm going to read through the end of the chapter to get a running start. This is 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded... Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. And now comes our passage in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Aren't you so grateful for the Bible? It's so clear, isn't it? What the Lord requires of his people. And uh, it's my joy to explain uh, verses 22 through 25 uh, today. Just to give you a sense of what Peter's trying to say as we get a running start here, he has already told us quite a bit about what blessings we have in salvation, especially from verses 3 through 12. And then as you just heard me read a moment ago, the blessings of salvation issue forth in personal holiness and fear of God as we live our Christian lives. And today we're going to move from what we might call the vertical direction of fear of God and service of God to uh, how should we treat one another. Uh, And the answer is, as you saw from verse 22, we should love one another earnestly from a pure heart. I think, you can see what you think of this, I think when Peter is describing these blessings for us, and he's describing the way in which we should live toward God and toward one another. He's telling the Christian story in a way that actually echoes the language of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Let me see if I can unpack this just momentarily. It was the night of the Passover way back in Exodus chapter 12. And God was about to deliver his people out of their 400-year-old or so bondage in Egypt. What did the people have to do on the night of the Passover? Two things. Number one, they were supposed to kill the Passover lamb. They are supposed to take a lamb, a lamb that was one year old without blemish, a lamb for each household, They were to kill the lamb at twilight as a sacrifice, and they were to put some of the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintel of their houses, and then they were to eat the lamb, roasted on the fire. And this lamb is called the Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb was a kind of sign for Israel that God was about to judge Egypt and the gods of Egypt that very night, because when God would see the sign of the blood on the doorposts and the lintel, he would pass over, thus the name Passover, he would pass over that house. And the house would be saved from destruction and death. And so in that way, by the sacrifice of the lamb, Israel was spared the judgment of God. The Passover lamb was the means by which Israel was delivered or ransomed from death. It was the means by which they were redeemed. That was the first thing. They're supposed to kill the lamb and all that that signified. The second thing was they were supposed to eat the Passover meal and, 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 and eat it in such a way as to be able to leave at a moment's notice. Do you remember that? Again, this is just Exodus 12. They had to, they had to have their belt fastened, it says. They had to have their sandals on their feet, and the staff was to be in their hands. And they were supposed to eat the meal in haste. Why? As a sign of their faith in what God was about to do for them that very night. They were to prepare themselves for action. Now, the Passover 
was one of the key moments in Old Testament redemptive works. But for what purpose did God redeem his people in the Old Testament? And I'd say it's not an overstatement to say his redemptive goal for them was their holiness. He redeemed them out of Egypt in order to bring them to the foot of Mount Sinai to show them what it was going to look like to be holy like God is holy. The only way that this was going to happen is if they learned to fear God and love one another. You can already tell where I'm going here, right? We saw last week that the fear of the Lord has something to do with reverential awe of God. And the thing I want to add is that I think fear is something that is apropos to a king. And so they were going to have to learn to fear God in as much as they needed to recognize that God was their true king. They were going to have to learn to live under his authority and fear him in that way. I think that's what Mount Sinai was all about. They wouldn't be holy like God is holy unless they learned first to fear him, recognize his authority over their lives, and then they could learn how to love one another because they were consecrated to God. So, I think this gets us back to 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells the Christian story and he gives us commands in such a way that echoes the language of Israel's exodus from Egypt. Just like Israel was ready, they were supposed to be ready and prepared to leave on a moment's notice on the night of the Passover. Did you see what Peter said way back up in verse 13? He said, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, let's set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They were to prepare, Christians to prepare their minds in the same sort of way that Old Testament Israel was to be prepared for God's saving events. Just like Israel was ransomed from their sins, ransomed from their bondage in Egypt, by the Lamb's blood, so also Peter says Christians have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. Did you see that in verse 18? We were ransomed from our Futile ways inherited from our forefathers, verse 19 says, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Do you see it? So he's the Passover lamb that brings us redemption. And just like Israel was ransomed in order to be holy, like God is holy, and to learn how to fear him throughout their lives, so also Peter says in verse uh, 15 and 16 and 17, essentially the same thing's true for Christians. We have been redeemed by the, the Passover lamb so that we can be holy before God. And that means first we'll learn to live before him as our king. We'll, we'll learn to fear him throughout the time of our exile, which means your entire Christian life. So in other words, Peter is telling us a story. It's actually the Christian story, isn't it? It's the Christian story. And this gets us to today, what are we supposed to do? What was Israel supposed to do? And the answer was they were supposed to love one another. Of course, the love command shows up in the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself is a way of summarizing 
uh, the responsibility of Israel toward one another. And so also Peter says, now that you've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb, now that you're going to You have learned to be holy like God is holy in as much as you'll recognize his authority over your life. Now let's talk about how we should treat one another. I think even Peter's choice of Isaiah chapter 40, which is at the very end of the chapter, we'll talk about this in just a moment, but I think his choice of Isaiah 40 is significant here because Isaiah 40 talks about a gospel of a new exodus. So there it is. There's a new exodus where God would bring his people out of their final bondage, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I'm right in discerning all of this so far, here is the payoff The Christian story is itself a kind of new and greater exodus. So maybe you already know that. Maybe you don't. Now you do. The story of Israel in the Old Testament foreshadowed and typified the story that is the Christian story. Namely, ours is an exodus story, isn't it? God meant Israel's exodus from Egypt to provide a powerful picture and foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to do for us. And Peter knows that. The new exodus that Jesus did for us was so much greater, wasn't it, than what happened in ancient Egypt. Jesus is a greater lamb with more precious blood, and he frees us not from the bondage of Egypt, rather the bondage of our own sins, such that we really can love one another. We really can serve and fear the Lord throughout our lives. When you read the Old Testament, I hope you do, please do, when you do, read it as Christian scripture. Read it not as a collection of random stories. Sometimes we, at least when I was a boy, I read it as random stories that were really cool, right? Some of them. But that's not really how we should read it, right? Read it as Christian, as as the Christian story that's being typified or foreshadowed. And I think that's what Peter is teaching us how to read Old Testament stories. All right, so my goal, therefore, that was a long lead-up, but my goal, therefore, this morning is ultimately to have you praise the Lord Jesus Christ because he has delivered you, if you're a Christian, from the bondage of your sin and transformed your hearts by the power of the gospel so that you can love one another genuinely. And that is the main point of our text today. So uh, maybe we can see it on the screen. The main text, the main idea, the big idea is that we should love one another genuinely because we are pure and born again by the gospel. So the main point is the first part of that sentence. We should love one another genuinely. This is actually really easy for us to understand, I think. We'll talk about that. And then I'll talk about what it means to be pure and then born again by the gospel. So if you're taking notes, I'm just going to walk through that main idea today. First of all, then, Christians should love one another genuinely. And uh, this is technically the only command in the passage. Does it shock you that Peter thinks we should love one another? It shouldn't shock you if you've been in church for a long time. This is uh, Christianity 101. 
How should we treat one another? We should love one another. Love is a kind of summary command in Scripture for how God expects his people to treat one another. It does fulfill the law. Uh, Paul can say in Romans 13, Jesus' new command when he washes his disciples' feet is simply to love one another as I have loved you. And uh, elsewhere, in 1 Peter itself, we'll get to this in weeks to come, but elsewhere, Peter can't stop talking about how we should love one another. So you're going to see it again. Chapter 2, verse 17 says we should love the brotherhood. Or chapter 4, verse 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. It's the exact same phrase, exact same words, since love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter is going to end his letter by saying, oh, by the way, greet one another with the kiss of love. Whatever that looks like in Phoenix, a kiss of love. Make sure you love one another well. So I think this is going to be a common theme that we're going to see in 1 Peter, and it's hardly surprising, right, if you know the Bible. Well, what is this love like? I want you to look in verse 22. There's a couple words I want to draw your attention to. Number one, notice verse 22 says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So the word sincere matters there. It's not a hypocritical love, but it's a sincere or genuine love. The second word I want to draw your attention to is uh, uh, at the very end of verse 22. It says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Do you see that? So the word earnestly, some translations use the word constantly or deeply or fervently, this word's translated in different ways, I think the idea is that when we love one another well, it's not a passing fancy, right? It's not just something that we initially do for another person and then never love them again, right? It's not a passing fancy, but it's a constant, deep, abiding love for one another. By the way, that's not easy to do. I'll talk about how to do this in a moment. It's not an easy thing to do to earnestly love one another or constantly do it. Also, the phrase, from a pure heart, tells us that the love is issuing from a heart that is genuine, isn't it? It's got pure motives. It's not just love that's outwardly expressed, although it is, but it's coming from the heart. Sometimes people act like they love you, but they really don't. Did you know that? It's possible for people to act like it, but it's insincere. Or sometimes it's possible for people to love you for a while, but after a while they stop it. Uh, That's possible too. So their, their love, whatever genuineness was there, it was kind of shallow because it didn't last very long. Sometimes people treat you with a veneer of love, but not because they have a pure heart toward you, right? Sometimes people try to say they love you, but really they only say that to you because they're hoping you'll give them what they want. So it's not from a pure heart, right? Whatever kind of love that is. It's sort of the I'll scratch your back in the name of love, uh, but I'm only doing it so that you'll, you'll scratch my back in return, right? That's adulterated motives of the heart. Sometimes people use other people, for their own selfish gain or selfish ambition, and even do it, excuse it, in the name of love. Um, I was reminded of this story recently, and I'll share it with you. When I was a boy, 
maybe I was nine or ten years old. Uh, I had a friend. Uh, he wasn't a close friend. I didn't want him to be a close friend. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, right? I'm not glorying in that. And uh, he invited me over to his house to play video games. Back when I was a boy, we had Super Nintendo, if you know what that is. And uh, I didn't really like the boy very much, but you know I said yes, right? Because I knew he was inviting me over to play video games. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely there, right? I didn't have any love for that boy at all, I don't think. I just loved his video games. Sometimes people are like that, right? They don't love you. They love what you can do for them, right? And uh, that's not, I think that's not what Peter's calling us to here. He's calling us to a genuine and unadulterated love for one another that issues from a heart that's pure towards one another. That's, if you, if, if you recognize that's the kind of love, then you might be left scratching your head. That's hard to fathom, actually, in some ways. It's hard to fathom, and it's pretty rare in our culture today. Now, I want to talk application just for a moment. What does this look like uh, at Trinity Bible Church? Well, I'm going to list some things here, and you can take them or leave them, but I want to get you thinking about what this might look like. Do you pray for one another, or do you only pray for yourself? Do you give generously of your time and your finances to others, or do you only give generously to yourself? Do you uh, give of your time in terms of being willing to give of your uh, very busy schedule to grab a cup of coffee with a person that maybe doesn't really excite you very much? Are you volunteering at the church in some way? I think our church is really good, by the way, when it comes to volunteering. However, I do want to mention a few current needs we have in the children's ministry. So thank you, Brittany Fields, for uh, giving me this. Uh, We need a couple of monthly workers. Uh, that, That is to say, you only have to serve once a month. You only get to serve once a month. We need six of you to serve once a month in the infant nursery. This is during the service hour. We need three of you to serve once a month in the toddler nursery during the service hour. We need two of you to serve in uh, the pre-K class. And we need one of you to serve once a month in the uh, kindergarten and first grade class, all during the service hour, right? It's a lot of volunteers, isn't it? We need people to be substitutes who are willing to be substitutes who are not on a monthly rotation but who could fill in if someone's sick and can't come in for some reason. So there's, there's, one, there's one way. Sometimes people aren't quite sure what loving one another looks like in a genuine way. There you go. I, I didn't run the numbers there, but that's a good list. And that's just children's ministry. I do want to say, please don't overwork yourself. Some of you volunteer maybe more than you should. However, if you're not volunteering in any way, I'm showing you how you can love Trinity Bible Church really well. It really doesn't matter what you think of children. Okay, it kind of does, right? It kind of does, actually. But you don't have to be a parent, do you, to know how to treat children well. Another way is to join a community group. Um, It's hard to love one another if you don't know one another, right? Really hard for Christians to love one another if they skirt out right as soon as the service is over and they don't talk to anyone in the room. 
You're not going to love those people well. I can almost guarantee it. If you don't uh, join a community group, maybe you can still uh, love one another well, but that's one of the avenues that you can consider of ways to get to know other people well. No one's saying this is easy, but I'm showing you ways that you can show genuine love for one another. Um, Briefly, I think loving one another means being willing to send tough text messages or or make tough phone calls to other Christians at the church when they sin against you. That's really hard to do. If you know your, maybe it's easy for you. It's hard for me to do that. But I think Christians love one another well when we're frank and speak the truth in love towards one another in those kinds of ways. We love one another well when we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and are willing to actually encourage one another in those moments with words. Loving one another means you're willing to serve. I already talked about that in a lot of ways. But the service means you don't have to be in front of everyone, right? You don't have to be in the limelight in order to actually be a servant of the Lord. Finally, and there, I could keep going on and on, right? But finally, when someone offends you at the church, and if that hasn't happened, it will. You just stick around here long enough, all right? It will. When you get offended by someone in the church, I think genuinely loving them means you don't walk away from the church, right? Just being very practically here. Sometimes Christians need this practical advice, right? What does it mean to love one another genuinely, constantly, from a pure heart? I think these things and a whole host of a lot more things. You guys, you guys can figure that out, all right? The point is, Peter is not thinking vaguely here. He's thinking very tangibly and observably. Now, This gets us to uh, points number two and three uh, in in our sermon. You might be left wondering right now whether it's possible to love one another constantly and genuinely because you might have heard me say things that seem impossible to you. And uh, I want to say it is hard to imagine such genuine love. If you know the Old Testament story, like I think Peter is thinking of, it's really hard to see this kind of love in the Old Testament, right? Do you know the Old Testament story of Israel? There's not a whole lot of what I just described that goes on in the Old Testament. It's mainly the opposite, kind of the negative uh, examples, mainly. So when Moses longed for the day when all of God's people would have circumcised hearts, he was longing for the type of day when all of God's people actually had hearts that would resound and move out towards one another with love. He longed for that day, but it's hard to see in the Old Testament. So I want to say, is there hope for us? Is it it possible for us to actually do this? And if so, how? So, Christians love one another genuinely for two reasons. There are two foundations, I think, in our text today that give rise necessarily to our love for one another. The first is because Christians are pure Now, verse 22 says it this way, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So there's the love at the very end of the verse, but how do you get there? Purifying yourselves by your obedience to the truth, right? That's how you then get the sincere brotherly love. So we have to talk about what does he mean when he says we purify ourselves or our souls? And and I want to ask, when does that happen? 
Well, I think we do this, whatever purity here means, we do this at conversion. I think verse 22 actually is a conversion verse. One of the reasons I think that is because we're about to see conversion again in verse 23. And I, I just think Peter is reflecting on the Christian story, and that gets us to Christian conversion. When you become a Christian, you purify your souls. The reason I think conversion is in his mind as well is notice the phrase in verse 22, you purify your souls by your obedience to the truth. Do you see that? So how do you purify yourself? By obeying the truth. What does that refer to? Oftentimes the word truth in the New Testament is just shorthand for the gospel of Jesus. I think that's the the case here. One text to show this is Ephesians 1.13 calls the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. I think here Peter is referring to that same gospel when when, when he uses the word truth. To obey the truth then is to obey the gospel. Peter himself in 1 Peter 4 verse 17 uses the phrase, obey the gospel of God. So it's coming again, except there he actually uses the word gospel instead of just the truth. I think the truth means gospel here. So you obey the gospel. I think this is what we do at conversion. At conversion, what do Christians do? We repent of our sins. We swear allegiance to Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. Christian conversion isn't, I want to make Jesus my Savior now. I'll make him my Lord later. That's not it, right? I think Romans 10.9 says as much. If we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. And believe in our hearts, God, God raised him from the dead, then we'll be saved, right? So in other words, being a Christian, and this happens at conversion, means we swear allegiance to Jesus as, as the Lord of our lives. We repent of our sins and we put our faith and our hope in God. I think then for Peter, when he says, obey the truth, he's just saying, this is what you do at conversion. When you obey the truth, that's your way of obeying the call of the gospel to run from your sins and to place your hope in God. And it was then that you purified your souls. So what does it mean to purify your souls? I'm sorry, this is going to take just a moment, I think, to unpack. This is kind of, I don't know if you feel the weight of this phrase. It's a little weird. Normally... Normally, we wouldn't say we purify ourselves, but God purifies us, right? But here he says, we purified our own souls. I want to say first, souls I don't think is the best translation here. Uh, The NIV says, you've purified yourselves. I think that's a better word because I don't think we're thinking of souls as opposed to bodies, but rather your entire self is made pure. I think that's the idea. Your entire person is purified before God. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I think what he's getting at here is by means of our repentance from sin, by means of our faith in Christ, we are cleaned up from our sin and consecrated to the Lord. I think that's what he's referring to. Let me explain it briefly. The language of purification is the language of ritual or ceremonial cleansing or consecration in order to meet with God. It would typically involve some kind of washing that would symbolize an individual's readiness to meet with God. So, for example, in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. 
Uh, Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God tells Moses to go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day when God's going to manifest his presence on Mount Sinai. In other words, if the people were going to meet with God, what did they have to do? They had to consecrate themselves. That's, that's, that's the verb. They had to wash themselves. They had to purify themselves. Into the New Testament, another example of this is John eleven fifty five. John 11, 55, at the time of the Passover, many Jews went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Why? Why they need to purify themselves before the Passover? Because I think purification was a kind of ceremonial way of preparing or consecrating yourself so that you can then celebrate the Passover properly. It's a sacred feast. So in the Old Testament, and I think in some places in the New Testament, a person purifies themselves in order to meet with God or to remain in the presence of God. Being clean before God, being consecrated to God, was a necessary condition to be with the Lord. In other words, there's no unconsecrated person or there's no impure or unclean person to be in his midst. This language of purification then is a kind of powerful way to describe one's preparedness to enter into sacred space, like maybe the temple, or to celebrate a sacred festival, like maybe the Passover. This outward ceremony in the Old Testament was supposedly, ideally, to signify the inward reality of a purified heart before God. So for Peter, here's the question, how does the language of purification serve as an apt descriptor of Christian conversion? And I I, I want to bring it home to you because I'm getting ready to describe you, okay? This is who you are, I think Peter's saying. When you become a Christian, that is to say, when you repent of your sins, when you trust in Jesus, that is the moment when you are cleaned up before God, so to speak, And you are consecrated by God into his service. It is the moment when you are made ready to enter into that sacred space, you might say, or to celebrate the sacred festival. I think Hebrews 12 says this. We don't come to Mount Sinai, but we do come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem at the moment of conversion. How does this happen? I think Jesus' death, I don't want you to forget the death of Christ here. The death of Christ is the basis for this consecration of the Christian. He ransoms us, doesn't he, from our futile ways of living. Peter doesn't think you can clean yourself up before God so that you can be with God, right? This isn't going to be a kind of works righteousness verse. In fact, 1 Peter 3.18, this is coming later, says Jesus died for our sins the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. That is how we are made pure or consecrated ultimately. That's the basis. It is his blood that cleanses us from all sin. And yet, I also want to say, when that death of Christ comes to us, when it is applied to us at conversion, we are actually changed within. We actually do repent of our sin. We actually do place our faith and hope in God. 
we actually do then move into, you might say, a place of having a changed heart toward God. And in that sense, we enter into a pure state or a clean state. I don't think, I don't think Christians are completely sinless. That's not the point, but we are really changed. We are really consecrated into the service of the Lord, and it's at the level of the heart. It's not just outwardly in a ceremonial way. It's at the level, ultimately, of the heart itself. When our hearts change toward God, we hope in him. We put our faith in him. We are consecrated into his service. And that leads to love for one another. That is why Peter says, if you want to love one another, you have to know it's the pure in heart. It's the pure in heart who will not only see God, but they'll love one another. All right, the final point I have then is Christians should love one another genuinely, not only because we are pure before God, but also we are born again by the gospel. And this is verses 23, 24, and 25, which I think are fairly easy to understand, actually. We're not going to spend very long here. Christians have been born again. Do you know that language? We've been born again by the word of God, namely the gospel, and therefore we should love one another because we have new life. We walk in newness of life. What does it mean to be born again? You guys know the Nicodemus story in John chapter 3. It doesn't have anything to do with going back into your mother's womb. Don't think that. Not going to happen. But it does have to do with you becoming a new person, not through self-management techniques. Right? If that's the route you go, you don't become a new person. You might try to influence yourself to live a better life or to turn over a, a new leaf. That's not what it means to be begotten anew. This means you need an entirely new heart. And that comes from God himself. I think the focus clearly here is on conversion again. When a person becomes a Christian, they are brought into the life of the age to come. They have new creation life that dawns in their hearts. Otherwise, they won't, to Nicodemus, see or enter the kingdom of God. Peter, of course, has already talked about this way up in verse 3 in the chapter. He talks about we were born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he continues to highlight its significance for the love command here. How is a person made new? And the answer is really clear from verse 23. So look at verse 23. It says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So how is a person born again? Through the word of God, right? What is the word of God? If you keep reading into verse 24 and all the way down to the end of verse 25, he talks about the word of God remaining forever. And verse 25 ends this way. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. In other words, it's the gospel, right? This word of God is the gospel that gives you new life. The word of God is called imperishable here. I don't think that seed here refers to the spirit. I think it's just another way of referring to the word of God. It lives, it abides. Peter is thinking of how a person is brought into the world. There's an earthly father who uh, has offspring through his seed 
And then there's a heavenly father who has his children, you might say, through imperishable seed. It's imperishable in the sense that it will never fade away and the life that is produced will never fade away. Did you know that about Christians? To be a Christian is so good because the life you have as a Christian is an imperishable life. This is why Peter says, all the way back up in verse 4, that the inheritance that God has for us is an imperishable one. Of course, because it comes from God, who is imperishable himself. Verse 24 supports the idea that God's word is imperishable from Isaiah chapter 40. I mentioned that a little bit ago. It's... uh, The word of God is contrasted with us. Human beings are like flowers and grass in the Sonoran Desert. They don't last for long, right? The glory of the flower, the glory of the grass, if there is any such thing in our desert, it doesn't last for long, right? That's the point. But contrasted with the evanescence of human life, earthly realities, We have the word of God that stands forever. This is why Trinity loves the gospel. This is why Trinity loves to preach the gospel. This is why we think the most important thing you can learn when you're here, however long you're at Trinity, is we want you to know the gospel because it's the gospel that brings you life. Pizza doesn't bring you life. Bounce houses don't bring you life, but the gospel brings you life, right? So what do we love here at Trinity? Not pizza. (laughs) We like it. We don't love bounce houses, although we kind of think they're cool, but we love the gospel, don't we? Because the gospel actually is what we need. It's the thing that can bring us something imperishable, something that will never lack in its ability to satisfy us. God loves to use his word to bring new life. And Peter then says, look, if you have this gospel preached to you and it takes root in your heart, what's going to happen in your life toward one another? You're going to love one another. Isn't that what verse 23 begins with? You see that first word in verse 23? Since you've been born again. So in other words, love one another because you have this new life. You're not going to make yourself love others well. Trust me, you're not going to do it. But God's word will do it in you. This is one of the ways we express our faith and hope in God. Sometimes, do you know this about yourself? I think it's true of me. Sometimes we get bored by the word of God. Just bored, right? So, so, so this is one of the ways where tangibly we can say we trust God's word. We're going to take God at his word that this is the way he's going to bring new life. This is the way he's going to revive my heart. We need to know and treasure the gospel. And then we'll love one another well, necessarily. I think there's a message here as I close for Christians and non-Christians. We'll do uh, non-Christians first. I I don't know your heart. God does, though. No matter what you think of yourself, if you are not a Christian, then your heart is not inclined to love others genuinely. You might like the idea of that, but it's not inclined to love others genuinely. And perhaps you even know that about yourself. Perhaps you feel your own selfishness. But I want to say 
there is hope in the gospel. I hope you can hear that. I just said so. There is life. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ. Truly put your faith and hope in God so that you can find cleanness before God. You can have new life in his presence. This new exodus idea can happen for you in your own life so that you can know God and then love others sincerely. Perhaps some of you would claim to be a Christian, but I want to press you a little bit because if you think about yourself long enough, it's pretty evident that you actually don't love others genuinely. You really only love yourself, but the love of others isn't there. And if that's true of you, I just say the same thing. Hear the gospel. The word of Christ brings faith. Trust and take him at his word. When you come to know God truly, it frees you from your bondage to love and serve yourself only. Rather, you're freed then to love others sincerely. For those of you who are Christians, I want to say, you know, there's no one in the room who is perfect in loving God or loving one another. Um, I hope you know that about yourself. It is true that you can grow in your love for one another. Christians fight selfishness too, right? We do. If you are a Christian, however, I think Peter is optimistic here because he thinks Christians, all of them, have new life, right? He thinks Christians, all of them, really are consecrated into the service of the Lord and have hearts that are pure before him. So he's pretty optimistic, actually. If you are a Christian, it's not going to be that hard to discern that, in fact, you do love others genuinely. Not perfectly or sinlessly, but really, observably, substantially. There will be evidence of love for one another in your life. I want you also to be refreshed by the gospel this morning. Thank the Lord first that there is such a thing as purity and consecration. Thank the Lord that there is such a thing as new life. Otherwise, we would be hopeless in order to love others well. However, the God who gave you new life is the God who is also full of love. So hope in that God afresh. Pray to the Lord every day, maybe when you wake up, God, make me holy today like you are holy so that I can love others well. Help me to fear you in my conduct today so that I can love others well. Hope in him afresh for that fresh daily grace. And let the gospel, which you need every day, have its proper effect in your life. Let's pray together.